0: Well, this morning we conclude this series, Armed for Battle, Uh, taking a look at the spiritual warfare and the armor of God, the equipment God's provided us in the midst of all of the conflict that rages not only within us, but around us, and particularly the spiritual attacks from the evil one that come in our lives. And so we're in Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll pick up in verse 10 as we have been doing and read down through verse 18 this morning. Uh, as we read the text together, if you have it in front of you, I encourage you to follow along. If not, it will be on the screen behind me as we read this morning. But in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, the Apostle Paul writes these words, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. This is God's Word. Listen, uh, we live in a tech-saturated society, don't we? Uh, in our modern day and time, there is technology that seems to make our lives some days easier, some days a whole lot harder, right? Um, but we live in a tech saturated society and in the modern world we're dependent upon much of our technology we have tech in our homes or smart homes uh, that you can control from your smartphone okay and you can lock your doors you can turn on your air conditioning you can turn on lights you can do all of those things from the touch of a touchscreen in your pocket We have tech in our cars right we have we have all kinds of stuff every time my parents get a new vehicle I'm just amazed because they always get like whatever the whatever the whenever they get a new vehicle they get like the XLT package or whatever it is, right, it's got everything basically loaded. Okay, and so there's like little buzzers in the seat that are telling you when you like get over too far in the lane, you're about to cross over, starts vibrating and stuff, like lights start flashing in the window at you whenever you're getting too close to somebody who's in front of you. It has technology that will put on the brakes for you if you're too close, following too closely to someone. We have tech in our bodies at times, right? Things that are installed in our bodies, like pacemakers that help regulate our heart rhythms. Or we have tech in our hands, all of us, at least most of us, if you have a smart device in your hands this morning, you have something uh, that our, I can imagine our predecessors uh, never dreamed of in their wildest dreams. I was talking with someone the other day about the fact that whenever we learned math as kids, our teachers told us we needed to learn math because we, would never, we wouldn't have a calculator with us everywhere we went. And now we have a calculator with us everywhere we go. Right? And so that, that, that rationale doesn't seem to hold much water these days. But these are incredible pieces of technology that have incredible capacities. They can generate complex algorithms and function in accordance with them. They can, like I said, vibrate our car seat when we're getting too close to the lanes. They can order pizza at a voice command from your Google Home or your Amazon. Uh, Alexa can order pizza from your local pizza place. They can do amazing things when they have power. However, when the car battery fails, right? All of that technology that vibrates your seats and flashes in your windows is worthless when it has no power, when a transformer blows or a cell tower is twisted because of a storm and you can't access the information highway, then you don't have the same capacities at your fingertips whenever things lose power. And listen, church, when Paul outlines for us the pieces of armor in Ephesians chapter six, and he comes to the end of the text to say, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, keeping alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. He's not giving us one more piece of armor to add to the arsenal as if prayer were a An additional piece of armor rather what paul is talking about here is that prayer is not one more weapon for us in the battle but rather prayer is the means by which we activate all the other weapons that god has provided for us prayer is the power source for all the armor that god has given He's not giving us one more piece of armor. He's talking about what is it, where is the the conduit of electricity that you plugged into in order to activate all these things in your life. The the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. All these things get activated in our lives by prayer. And so this morning as we take a look at this last section of the text today, I want us to think about the type of prayer that Paul calls on us to pray and the content of those prayers, the manner that we ought to pray in and the content that we ought to pray for as we work through this together this morning. So let's take a look at, first of all, the manner with which we are to pray. Paul, I believe in the text, is telling us this, that when it comes to particularly to spiritual warfare and it comes to the fact that the battle is real, that we ought to pray with a degree of urgency in our lives. There ought to be urgency in our prayer if we know the battle's real, that we have a real adversary, that we're under real attack, and that we have real armor, then there ought to be a sense of urgency to activating all that armor to defend ourselves against all the attacks as our adversary seeks to gain ground in our lives. And that's why we're told in verse 18, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. To that end. To what end? To the end of prayer. That's the end, Paul says. We ought to keep alert with all perseverance. So, if we're going to pray urgently, listen, urgent prayer requires these two things, Paul says. First of all, urgent prayer requires an alertness in our lives, an alertness in our lives. The word keep alert literally meant to be sleepless or to keep awake or to watch or to be circumspect, attentive to what's going on, to exercise constant vigilance over something. So listen, this word at times got got used in the ancient world to describe shepherds and watchmen. If you think about both of those types of individuals, watchmen who were set out upon the walls of the city, who were keeping watch on the horizon, one eye to the horizon, looking for the enemy as they advanced oftentimes under the cover of darkness, to come against the city and its fortifications. So the watchmen were awake at certain watches of the night. They were circumspect. They were attentive. They were vigilant in order to protect the city. And shepherds in the ancient world, listen, as they walked with the sheep and the the livestock in the fields... Okay, they were vigilant. They were circumspect. They were looking for predators lurking in the bushes, listening one ear to the ground. Watchmen had one eye to the horizon. horizon shepherds had one ear to the ground, listening for the rustling of the leaves or the, 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 the rocks as they moved and shifted under the feet of the predators who were coming after the sheep. Because in the ancient world, there was no such thing as electric fences to keep predators out, nor was there ADT, Okay? to keep intruders out of your fortified cities. They weren't ring doorbells either to tell you who was on your doorstep ready to pillage and plunder. None of this existed. So one eye to the horizon, one ear to the ground, there was an alertness to them. They would be up at all hours of the night looking and listening for the adversary and for predators. And Paul says that we ought to keep alert to the end of prayer that we need to be vigilant. If there's going to be an urgency in our prayer, there's got to be an attentiveness to what's taking place. One eye to the horizon, one ear to the ground. And being alert, aware of our surroundings. Not caught sleeping and unaware of what's going on within us and what's going on around us. Urgent prayer requires alertness, but it also, Paul says, requires perseverance. Perseverance. See, the idea here is this constant vigilance, an effort that never lets up, confident in waiting for the results. Listen, several times the characteristics are emphasized here by a a, a participle, right, which shows the the continuity, suggesting perseverance doesn't falter or fail. What that means is, right, it's a is this, this this verbal adjective. That just kind of carries this idea that it's not just that you persevere at times, but you're the kind of person who perseveres in all times and in all circumstances. That there is an endurance to you. See, Paul knows that the human psyche, and I don't know about yours, but I can tell you about mine, that the human psyche and how prone we are to weariness in prayer. As we pray, and so he calls us to perseverance in our prayer life like the widow. Who continues to knock and continues to knock and continues to knock until there is an answer? Listen, urgent prayer requires a sense of attentiveness and alertness and a degree of perseverance because we are so prone, aren't we? We're so prone to praying for a day or praying for a week. And then when we don't see the clouds parting and we don't see the sea pulling back and we don't see right the unicorns right the the magical right mysteries unfolding before us we don't see these incredible cataclysmic events we tend to grow weary and pull back rather than persevering and enduring and continuing to knock and continuing to seek and continuing to ask persevering in prayer so Paul says, if you're going to, there's going to be an urgency in your prayer, you can't be asleep. You can't be asleep, church. And there's got to be an endurance to it. So what will fuel that kind of prayer life? What will fuel that kind of prayer life? Listen, what fuels that kind of urgent prayer life is the Word of God. That prayer is to be fueled by or with the Word. Now listen, I know in our lives, our prayer life can at times ebb and flow. And there are times in our prayer life where it looks, if, if you've ever built a fire at a campfire pit or a ring or you've got a fire pit in your backyard, right and you begin to build a fire and then it burns at times when you go out the next morning, there's just these cold, gray ash that's sitting there in the fire pit maybe a little bit of a log that's left unburned and at times that's what our prayer life looks like It looks like cold gray ash at other times it looks like this weak orange flame that's barely kind of holding on and at times it looks like a white hot fire that is blazing in our lives and it takes time listen church for a fire to get white hot like that Whenever you light a fire in your backyard in the fire ring, right? it doesn't become white hot instantly, does it? It takes time and it takes fuel in order for that fire to burn to a temperature where it becomes blazing, becomes white hot. It takes fuel to get there. Now there are a number of things that we might fuel our prayer life with other than the Word that are kind of like lighter fluid. Okay? You ever spray lighter fluid on a fire when it first gets lit and it goes, right? Nearly engulfs the entire pergola, you know, in the backyard, and the fire department's coming out, right? You spray lighter fluid on it, it does that, but it does that just real quick and then it goes away. And it doesn't last. There's a number of things that fuel our prayer life that are like that. One of them is pride. Pride can fuel our prayer life. Listen, when the length and the eloquence of your public prayers are... They're not indicative of the depth of your prayer life, church, or your relationship with God. How long you can pray for in public, how theological you can sound in public whenever you pray, they are not indicative of a deep relationship with God and a white-hot prayer life. You know how I know that? In Matthew chapter 6, whenever Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, He actually criticizes the scribes and the Pharisees. Listen to what He says. And the Gentiles. He says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. In other words, they love prayer in the public spaces. They love to use eloquent words. They love to be seen and heard in their prayer life. But he says, I tell you the truth, they receive their reward because their prayer life is not in the closet, but it's on the street corner. Another criticism he has in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, and when you pray, he says, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. In other words, I pray for a long time with all these empty phrases, just piling phrase upon phrase, so much so that I might not even know what I'm saying. I'm just, because I feel like i got to go on and on and on. As if God didn't hear me the first time that I asked. That I have to ask in multiple ways. And Jesus says, don't think that you're going to be heard because you pray for a really long time. But listen, underneath the desire to be the person that everyone wants to pray in public, right, because of your long prayers and eloquent words and rich phrasing at times, what can be driving that is pride. You want to be seen in the synagogues. You want to be seen on the street corners. You want to be heard because of your many words. Pride can fuel your prayer life, but it's like lighter fluid. It will only burn as hot as it strokes your pride. Second, greed can be another source of fuel for our prayer lives. Listen, at times what drives our prayers is not God's glory or our good or good in the lives of others who are around us, but our greed. In James chapter 4, verses 2-3, to three, James says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Look, in the book of James, in the context in which James is writing, these particular verses suggest that this kind of prayer is the, a disguised form of covetousness. Of covetousness. See, so he, goes, he says some, some would fight and steal to get what they want, right? So they're going to strong arm people and they're going to break in and take what they believe to be rightfully theirs. Whereas others will disguise their covetousness in spiritual clothes through prayer that are prayers that are offered in the flesh rather than the spirit without any reference to God and His will but simply motivated by our own desires and idolatries. And so we treat God like a a lamp that we can rub, and He's going to dispense our three wishes. So greed at times drives our prayer, fuels our prayer life, and we treat God as if He's someone who's like a vending machine that we're going to get out of Him what we want. And it's like lighter fluid because it will only burn as hot as it provides us what we want. So both of those are insufficient and I would say uh, very unspiritual sources of fuel for prayer. See, the only kind of source for prayer that will sustain and burn white hot is God's Word. Let me tell you why I say that from the text. Notice the first words in verse 18 are praying at all times in the Spirit. So what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Listen, prayer in the Spirit is not rambling prayer that just goes on and on and on. Okay, Prayer in the Spirit is not endless babble. Prayer in the Spirit is not even passionate prayer. Although I would hope that we pray with passion and fervor. But rather, prayer in the Spirit is prayer that is fueled and shaped by God's Word. Praying in the Spirit is Scripture-saturated prayer. Why do I say that? Paul has just identified the Word of God as the sword that the Holy Spirit wields in our lives to cut our enemies and do surgery on our own hearts. We talked about that several weeks ago, that God's Word is the sword that the Spirit picks up and slashes the devil and cuts things out of us. And then it goes right off of that statement, Right? Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit. See, it is the it is the word of God that shapes that that, that saturates our prayer life and leads to this prayer in the spirit. Okay, So it's not long rambling prayers, it's not passionate prayers, it's not endless babble. What it is, it's prayer that is shaped and fueled by God's Word that grows out of an intimate relationship with God whereby we have communion and fellowship with His Holy Spirit as His Spirit is taking the Word and bringing it to bear upon our lives. And then that prayer grows out of that, out of that soil saturated in God's Word. And so if we're going to pray prayers that are fueled by the Word, one of the things, just real practical, that we ought to do in our prayer lives is pray the prayers of the Bible. What what do the biblical authors pray for? Because you find those recorded for us in the Scriptures. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 3. Go back in the book just a little bit, in that same letter, and listen to what Paul says. For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father. What does that signify? I come before God in prayer from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is what Paul prays for the church at Ephesus. And we would do well to adopt this prayer for our church, for our family, for our own lives. That we would know the love of Christ. That Christ would dwell in our hearts. That would be strengthened with all power in our inner beings. When you say, I don't know what to pray for someone, that's a good start. That's a good start for anyone, regardless of where they are. Or look at Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. In what's known as His high priestly prayer, He says this, He says, I do not ask, John 17, 20, I do not ask for these only, speaking of His disciples who were there with Him, but also for those who would believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one. One of the prayers that we ought to pray for the universal church is unity amidst our diversity. Listen, there are prayers... We could go... (laughs) I wish I had time, right? We could go through the Bible and look at prayer after prayer after prayer and say, if you don't know what to pray, this is the best place to start. Allow the prayers of the Scripture to shape your prayer life, to fuel it. And as you read God's word, take those things that God is speaking to you from the scriptures and begin to put those into the form of prayer back to Him, asking Him to do that in your life and in the lives of others. Fuel your prayer life with God's word. All right. We got more. Paul says, pray at all times. And I wish I had time to exposit that more fully, but I think I did earlier in this series just a little bit when we talked about the shield of faith in all circumstances. Essentially what Paul is saying is, is you pray in the midst of tragedy and you pray in the midst of triumph. Both. Because both have their unique ways of testing you. So what do we pray for? And who should we pray for? I think Paul tells us in this text we have to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. Look at what he says in the text. He says, with all prayer and supplication. We pray in the Spirit at all times with all prayer and supplication. And then he goes forward to say and making supplication for who? Some of the saints. No, all the saints. Let's unpack that a little bit. When he says making with all prayer and supplication, I believe what Paul's talking of is about that concentric circle to, of prayer is starting with ourselves and then praying outward toward the world. So starting with praying all kinds of prayers for ourselves. Now, we could go back and talk about, talk about all kinds of prayers prayer for ourselves. I want to give you four of them this morning four types of prayer that we ought to be praying for ourselves particularly in warfare prayer particularly as we feel under attack by our adversary first of all prayers of confession prayers of confession you know in this in in, in the sermon on the mount the lord's prayer when jesus teaches us to pray one of the things he teaches us to pray is that we would pray forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors You know, and and I'll just say this morning in a very summary statement that, listen, at the cross and in Christ, all of our debt has been canceled. Yet all of our daily debits ought to be confessed. All of our daily debits ought to be confessed. In Psalm 66, verse 16 to 19, the psalmist writes these words, come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he's done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayers. Listen, that word cherished, it literally means to look upon with joy, to delight, to look forward to the opportunity to engage in something. And Paul says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, if I had delighted in it, if I had taken joy in it, if I had looked forward to the, the opportunity to engage in it, God would not have heard my prayers. Thomas Goodwin, a Puritan pastor, said this. He says, go down into your hearts and take the keys of them and ransack your private cupboards and narrowly observe what junk, junkets, okay? I like that word, junkets. And bring that word back. Your souls have now lived upon and gone behind the door and secretly and stoutly have made a meal of them. The lights are secret things as treasures are. As dogs, they have bones they hide and secretly steal forth to gnaw upon. So men have sins they hide under their tongues as sweet bits. Listen, we have a dog who likes to break into our pantry whenever we leave the door open and take bags of chips and go and hide under our bed and open them and eat a little bit but leave some for later. And listen, that's the way many of us are with our sin. It is in the dark places, in the secret places, in the unconfessed places that it reigns over our lives. When we cherish our sin, it stifles our fellowship with God as it wounds the heart of the Father. Are there, listen, are there secret sins in your life that you're cherishing and not confessing? Those are strongholds in your life that give so much ground over to the enemy. Do you look forward to the end of the day when no one else is around so you can pull up images and videos on your phone? Do you look forward to connecting with a certain group of friends so you can slander and gossip as you share prayer requests? Do you cherish anger in your heart and pull it out and gnaw on it every time someone crosses or disagrees with you? See, in the midst of warfare prayer, one of the prayers we ought to pray continually in our lives as prayers of confession. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Would you reveal if there's any wicked way within me? Expose those things that I might bring those before you and confess those daily debits so that I might have fellowship with you and experience the fullness of your pardon and cleansing in my life. Prayers of confession. Second, prayers of submission. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus also teaches us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will come be done the prayer of submission church is us pleading with god to bend our will to match his to bend our will to match his when jesus says we must learn to pray your will be done listen he teaches us this that prayer at the outset involves the exaltation of god and the renunciation of self and to come in prayer that we're renouncing ourselves saying your kingdom come your will be done R.C. Sproul talked about this particular type of prayer, and he said this, he said, I have often wondered whether Jesus, when he set forth the priorities of prayer, he had a reason for listing the petitions in the order that he did. First, he listed, hallowed be your name. Second, was your kingdom come. Third, was your will be done. Those petitions may be distinguished from one another, but they're so interconnected that we dare not divorce them from one another. I'm convinced that although we pray for the manifestation and the victory of the kingdom of God, it is futile to hope for the victory of God's kingdom on this planet until or unless the name of God is regarded as sacred. Because God's kingdom does not come to people who have no respect for Him. Likewise, we will pray that the will of God be done in this world, but God's will is not done by people who do not regard Him with reverence and with adoration. So the very beginning of godliness, the very beginning of transformation in our lives and our society begins with our posture before the character of God. And Thomas Watson, a 17th century Puritan pastor, said this, he spoke of this kind of pleading when he spoke of pleading with God over diligently doing all that God commands and patiently submitting to all that God inflicts. All that He brings in our life. But this kind of prayer, church, listen, this prayer of submission where we're saying, God, not my will, but Yours be done. It feels like suicide in our culture. And here's why it feels that way. Because in the Western world, we have a baseline expectation of a very easy and comfortable life. See, we expect a life where there is no resistance. A life where everything falls into place. Kind of a Disney-esque life. I can remember back in the 1980s, growing up and watching the Disney Sunday night movies. Right, I remember every time the Disney Sunday Night movie came on, there was a theme song, a score from the movie from the from the from Pinocchio that was sung by Jiminy Cricket. You remember the song they always sang at the beginning of the Disney uh, Sunday Night movies, right? When you wish upon a star, right? Makes no difference who you are. When you wish upon a star, your dreams come true. Your dreams come true. See, we're so conditioned with this in modern American culture that for many people, their prayer exclusively involves trying to pray things into existence. I'm wishing on a star. My dreams must be coming true. I'm going to pray things into existence rather than praying ourselves into endurance. In the midst of hardship, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of affliction, We expect God to change our situation rather than through our situation change us. So when we pray, God, Your kingdom come, Your will be done, we're saying, not my will. I'm not taking things into my hands. I am not going to be an autonomous, independent individual who decides for myself when and what I'll do, but rather I'll submit to God and His good will for my life. God, would you bend my will to yours? Listen, in the midst of the attacks of the adversary, there is perhaps no more type of prayer needed than this one. Because you will be tempted at every side to turn away and to bring your will into existence rather than his. Third, prayers of preservation. When Jesus in the Lord's Prayer teaches us, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And when he teaches us to pray this prayer, I believe Jesus is teaching us to pray like our sin is more destructive in our lives than our suffering. We may not believe that, but it's true that our sin is more destructive than our suffering. There's something more destructive than our trials. There's something more destructive than our sufferings. And that is yielding to temptations to sin. Listen, as the story of Cain in the Old Testament, it reminds us that sin doesn't just want to play a minor role in our lives. But in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, we're reminded that sin wants to rule over us. It wants to rule over. It wants to have its way. So asking to be delivered from sin and temptation is a cry that emerges, listen, only from the heart of a citizen of God's kingdom. Only from the heart of an adopted son or daughter. Because the heart of an adopted son or daughter is put into a position where its desire is to honor the Father who has loved them and embraced them and brought them into the home and brought them into the family. The King whose reign and rule is good and gracious. That's the desire of that heart. And this petition is one of kingdom warfare to conquer the powers of sin, Satan, and demons that we might live for His heavenly kingdom. God, would You preserve me? Would You keep me? Would You keep me from giving myself over to temptation in the midst of the test that I face in this life? The fourth kind of prayer is the prayers of adoration. When Jesus says, "Our Father, in heaven, hallowed be Your name." Now, the Old English word "hallow" is uh, where we don't use a whole lot in our culture outside of Halloween. Okay, but it meant in, the, in, in, in 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 earlier English, it means to be make to make holy, to be set apart, to set above, to be worthy of praise and adoration. And so what Jesus is teaching us to pray is this, that our first priority in prayer is not parading in front of God with a list of petitions and requests, but our first priority in prayer rather is asking the name of God, His glory, His reputation, His renown, have its rightful place in our lives and in our land, both privately and publicly. In other words, Jesus says... It's learning to pray God-centered prayers. Prayers that take the focus off of ourselves and place them squarely upon God. And here's one of the reasons this is important in the midst of warfare. Because hallowing, adoring God, is the path to healing in your life. <laughs> because, listen, listen, True confession and true petition, they grow out of adoration. You can't pray your kingdom come, your will be done, without hallowing God, adoring Him with your, in your heart. Right? You, 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 you will imitate who or what you adore. Right? That's so true, isn't it? If you adore, if the greatest love of your life right, is your friends, then you begin to imitate your friends if the greatest commitment and adoration in your life is celebrity and our culture and popularity, then you begin to imitate those celebrities that you want to be included with. Right? It's just a reality for all of us. We imitate what we adore. Right? And so listen, if you're going to have healing in your life, have your life put back together in the image of Christ, the only way that happens is through the adoring the image that He, he wants to put you back together in the image of. hallowing it in addition you'll never have peace with God from God in your petitions without hallowing listen you can drag all your problems and issues before God and dump them like a suitcase at his feet and not walk away with peace unless there is adoration for God in your heart and here's why because hallowing God it gives you the perspective that you need to bring all of your problems before God and leave them there and set them in their proper place and have proper perspective in your life. Because if you're hallowing something other than God at the center of your life, if you're hallowing your job, if you're hallowing your friends, if you're adoring your children or romance or hobbies, then you will only pray when those things are at stake and you will not have peace when you walk away because there is nothing more powerful or important to trump the concerns that you have about those things in your life if there's not something bigger that your heart is captivated by, without this kind of adoration, you may bring your needs there, but you won't be able to really walk away and have peace. So this, listen, these prayers of adoration and preservation and submission and confession, they're vital in the midst of warfare. And a means by which we activate truth in our lives the means by which we activate the breastplate of righteousness and defend ourselves against the enemy's accusations the means by which we activate the shield of faith and believe and trust God in the midst of all circumstances these kinds of prayers but Paul doesn't stop with praying for yourself because he goes on to say making supplication for all the saints all the saints this is this idea of supplication is praying for specific needs in the lives of others and listen, church, these are not just the saints that you know and like. Okay? Because he, he, that's not, he doesn't give, that's not a footnote there, right? right? See footnote three, right? Just the people that you get along with. But for all the saints, all the saints, saints who are uh, mere acquaintances and the saints that you do not know well, saints you may never meet, saints that you have issues with, big ones and small ones. But you're making supplication for them. You're bringing their needs before God. If you don't know what their needs are, start by praying the prayers of the Bible because they all need to know the love of Christ, be strengthened by His Spirit. They all need to be, have a sense of unity in the midst of diversity. They all need those things. So you begin by praying those things. If you know particular needs in their life, then you're bringing those needs before God. You're praying for all kinds of people in all kinds of places. You're praying for some people who are in really hard places. The persecuted church in corners of the globe where to gather on a Sunday morning is Risky. If you don't know where those peoples and places are, there's an organization called The Voice of the Martyrs and their website is very simple. Persecution.com And it will unfold for you different tribes and peoples and places where there are churches and Christians who are under heavy persecution from other religious groups or from governmental agencies in their land. And I would just encourage you this week as a family, if you have not been exposed to some of those, go to that website and begin to read as a family and would you adopt one people group, one place, one pastor, one missionary in some of these hard places. And then as a family around the dinner table at night, that you begin to pray for those people who are in those places. Making supplication for all the saints, whom you may never meet, church, this side of heaven, and who can benefit you in no way, but that you would bring them before God. Let me ask you a question. I know we're running out of time, and I wish I had more time. I always wish I had more time. But let me ask you a question. What are the governors that you have placed on your prayer life? What are the limitations that you've placed upon what God might do? Do do, One of the the ways to maybe get at that is to ask yourself this question, do I just pray for the small sinners that I know? Or do I pray for the great, bold sinners that I know? Do I I just... (laughs) Do I just pray for those individuals who I think, man, that's such a good dude. He's not a Christian, but I wish he'd be a Christian because he got so many values in common with me. I'm going to pray that God would save him. Or do you also pray for those individuals who are so far removed in their rebellion and sin against God that their life looks nothing like yours? Do you believe that God can break into their heart and do war with the enemy, unblind their eyes, from the God of this age and awaken them to the beauties and glories of Christ? Do you believe that God can save just small sinners? Or do you believe He can save great sinners? What, regu- what regulations have you placed upon your prayers? What limitations have you placed upon your prayers? Do you just pray the small everyday items. I'm not saying that God is not concerned about small everyday items in your life, but do you just pray for those things? God, could I get to work today without right, road rage? <laughs> without traffic? Would you, God, clear a path like parting the Red Sea and allow me to get to downtown Dallas on time and sane? Or do you pray about? Do you pray about those areas of your life? in which it seems that the claws of the enemy have never been released. Those things, those addictions that you still struggle with, those insecurities that are still present, no matter how much you've heard preaching on them, no matter how much you've read scripture, they're still present in your life. You pray, God, would you free me from that? How big are your prayers? Listen, I want to encourage this morning as we close to pray big pray prayers in the midst of the war and to call on the one who fought for us. Listen, I love some of these texts in multiple places in the Old Testament. We see that God promises to fight on behalf of his people and that you see sometimes unseen armies showing up and answering God's, the petitions of God's people through His prayers. A couple of places. Deuteronomy 20, verses 1 to 4. God gives these commands about warfare. He says this, When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart be faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is He who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. You notice what God says to His people in Deuteronomy 20. He says, You're, this is remember, M- Moses' farewell sermon God has done miraculous things to redeem them from slavery and bondage and captivity essential death in Egypt to bring them through the Red Sea, to bring them toward the land of promise and He says when you go in, there are still going to be battles to fight after I've redeemed you out of Egypt. There's still going to be the battles to fight in the land. And so when you go out to war and you see the opposing army and they're imposing, I mean, he it, it, it says, don't be afraid, don't be faint because God's going to fight for you. He delivered you and He will fight for you. And listen, church, I'm here to tell you this morning that God has, if you're in Christ, God has redeemed you. He's redeemed you from bondage. He's redeemed you from slavery. He's redeemed you from captivity. He's redeemed you from death. And I'm not the only one who draws that imagery. The authors of Scripture bring that forward in the New Testament and they say the same way that God redeemed Israel, He's redeemed us. But He has not redeemed us by going through the Red Sea. He's redeemed us by His Son leaving heaven, coming to the earth, living, dying, rising from the grave in victory over Satan, sin and death, disarming all the rulers and powers and principalities. In Colossians chapter two, Paul says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, with who? With Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing, you know what I'm trying to say, over them in Him. He disarmed them and He disgraced them at the cross with triumph, church. He redeemed us if we're in Christ. And you know what that means? He'll fight for us. He will fight for us. So call on Him. In the same way that Elisha does in 2 Kings chapter 6. I'll close with this story. Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 6, he's there in the land. And the king of Syria is coming up against Israel. And as the king of Syria comes up against Israel, it seems like every single time the king of Syria makes a move, the king of Israel knows it. And so the king of Syria says, listen, are there spies in our midst? Like, are there people who are part of our entourage who are actually for the king of Israel and for the Israelites. And his second in command says, no, that's not what's going on, king. We are all loyal to you. Here's our issue. There is a man of God there in Israel who speaks the words of the king. He hears what you say in your chambers, right? God gives him insight to that and he shares that with the king. So everywhere we go, they know where we're going before we get there. And so the king says, well, I know what we got to do. we got to go find this guy right? We've got to put a hit out on him. And so the king of Syria sends, they find out where Elisha is at. He's in Dothan. And so they, Not Alabama, but, but in Israel. And so they send, right, an, a great army and chariots and horses to go up against the city where Elisha is. And so they come at night, and in the morning, whenever they awake, in 2 Kings chapter 6, In verse 15, we read this, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out. So this is Elisha's servant. It says, behold, an army with horses and chariots were all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha said to him, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. He says, don't be afraid. We got more troops than they do. We have access to more power than they have. So don't be afraid. Don't be faint. Don't shrink back. And then the Syrian troops begin to advance and Elisha prays. He says, would you blind them? And God strikes the Syrians with blindness so they cannot see. And they come into the city and Elisha actually goes out to meet them. And he says, hey, the guy you're looking for isn't here. Let me lead you to where he's at. And they bring him to Samaria. And then he gets to Samaria and the king says, what should I do with them? Should I slaughter them? And Elisha says, no, don't kill them. Give them some bread. Give them some water. Right? Right? And let's send them back to their master. (laughs) Right, here comes the army against Elisha. The hit's been put out. And Elisha says to his servant, he says, listen, do not be afraid. The ones who are with us are more than the ones who are with them. In church, I'm here to tell you the same thing this morning. Because of the work of Christ, that those who are with us The very armies of the hosts of heaven are more than the ones who are with them. So call on the one who fought for us because He will continue to fight for you. He will continue to fight for you. Pray the prayers of confession and adoration, of submission, of preservation with urgency in your life as you face the attacks of the adversary. And pray for those saints, particularly those who are in hard places. Let's pray this morning. Father, we come today recognizing that we are insufficient, but You are more than enough. And because You are more than enough, because You are with us, because Your Holy Spirit has been given to us as Your church. Because of the finished work of Christ at the cross. That we can rejoice in knowing that You who have redeemed us from our cruel and harsh taskmaster of sin, an enemy of Satan, and even our final adversary of death. You've redeemed us from those, God. And now, as we live in a land between our redemption and our final salvation upon the return of Christ, as we live in that land between, that You still fight for us. May we call on You Ask you to do great and mighty things. That our petitions would only be limited by the truth of who you are, in your nature and character, and what you've revealed in your word. But that we would come boldly before your throne of grace, as you've invited us to do because of Christ. And we would pray big prayers. In our lives. In the lives of our families. In the life of our church. In the life of our community. In the life of our nation. May we pray all kinds of prayers. For all kinds of people. Including ourselves. With urgency God. Keep us awake. And alert. And may we endure. May we endure. Day after day. And week after week. Continuing to knock. Even. Even when it seems like the door that is being opened to us isn't the one that we thought we would be walking through. For those in the room this morning, God, who are your sons and daughters, may they have that confidence to approach you. And for those who are not, may they come to Christ in repentance. May they come to Christ in faith, placing their confidence in Him, being redeemed from sin and Satan and death so that they can know what it's like to have You fighting for them on their behalf. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.